be thinking about that as we get ready for Wednesday night. Just be thinking about it. doesn't have to be anything uh, profound or extensive or anything like that. Just verse that you've read that week, uh, truth about God that you've been meditating on, something along those lines, and we'll, we'll gather again on Wednesday and have opportunity to share testimonies along these lines. All right. What are you justified by? Faith? Or works? Or both? Alright. What does it say in James 2, verse 24? James 2, 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Not trying to set you up for a trip quest, trick question, not trying to undo anything that you've heard preached from the scripture in the past, but I think that we should take seriously and consider carefully what James is saying to us in this passage. I think one of the most important things that we need to do is to set this passage in its context. In the beginning of the book, James started out and said, God is doing a work to mature your faith through the trials that you are experiencing. Consider James' audience again. People, probably largely Jews, who have been scattered through persecution throughout the Roman Empire. People who have uh, lost relationships with family, lost the stability of work, no longer live in the places where they once lived. Their lives are in upheaval. And James comes to them in chapter 1 and verse 2 and says, Count it all joy. When you encounter trials, why? The testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We see the part about wisdom, the idea about persevering under trial, the danger of giving into temptation. And then at the end of chapter 1, he begins addressing the question of what true faith looks like. Trials are supposed to produce in you a mature, a complete, a, perf a perfected, or a perfect faith. How do you know if you have that kind of faith? How do you know that God is at work in you, and that your faith is real, and that you are one of God's people, and that you're doing what God wants you to do? Well, the end of James 1 pointed out a number of things that were sort of uh, checkpoints to say, do I have true faith? Am I really fo following God? Are you quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger? Or do you have the order on those reversed? That was one of the checkpoints. Are you someone who encounters God's word and walks away from it unchanged? If you do that often enough, it begs the question of whether you really and truly know God. In contrast, if you, instead of abandoning God's word, gaze intently at it, meditate on it, act on it, are changed by it, you receive God's blessing, and it demonstrates that God is at work in your heart and life. And then at the end of chapter 1, if you think you're religious and don't watch what you say, your, uh, your religion has a lot to be desired. He's going to talk about that again in chapter 3. And then in the end of chapter 1, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Show your faith by your attitude, 
that reflects God's attitude toward those who are in need, which is consistent with what we see all throughout the Old Testament, what Israel was condemned for when they didn't do it, what they were praised for when they did do it, that like God, they were concerned about the needs of their fellow Israelites, particularly those who needed help, which is borne out at the beginning of chapter 2, right? You have someone come in. This person is poor. This person is not remarkable by the standards of this world. This person can't help you in any way. How do you treat that person? Do you treat them poorly just because they're not rich? Well, that's favoritism. And why is that wrong? Because the law said, love your neighbor as yourself. The law of liberty, which binds those who trust in Christ today. When I say bind, um, it's an obligation that we are able to follow by the work of Christ. It is a law of liberty because we're not under the oppression of thinking that if we keep it in some way, we'll be justified in God's sight by the keeping of the law. Because Paul says in Romans that that's impossible. But rather, it is a law of liberty in which we are free to obey God. No longer slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness. But in reality, what God requires of us now is the same as what God required before. Genesis 9-6, not so very different. Why? Genesis 9-6 says, If you shed man's blood, by man shall your blood be shed, because man is made in God's image, and there is life in the blood. Why is that taken so seriously? Because you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You're not seeing that person as made in the image of God. You're not living out what God has called you to do toward your fellow man. We fast forward to where we are now in, in James. James has said, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Mercy will be, judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? From what? From whom? From the judgment that God will pour out on those who have received no mercy and therefore show no mercy to those around them. On those who do not know God and therefore cannot obey God. They don't love their neighbor as, they, as their self. They don't love God above all other things. Can that faith save him? James' answer, I think, would be no. And he illustrates it. In verses 15 through 17. If her brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, which is not disconnected from what he said in the previous section, if a poor man walks into your assembly, what he said at the end of chapter 1, if an orphan or a widow in need comes to your attention, what's your response to them? Now he comes and he says, in the context of the church, a brother or a sister, this family language is used to describe those who are in the context of the church body. So this is not a general command to say, if anybody in the whole world is in need, you have an obligation to help them. There are other passages in Scripture that's, that I think would encourage us to consider our responsibility toward other people around us. But the context here is a brother or sister, fellow member of the church. They are in need. They don't have basic things met. They don't have clothing. They don't have their daily bread. If one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, I'll pray for you. I hope it all works out. I'm sure you'll be good tomorrow. 
and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself in the context of the church if you know someone has a need, and particularly you have means to meet that need, and you say, I don't care about that. What I've got is for me, for my enjoyment. I've worked hard for it. It's mine, and no one can have it. That attitude is an attitude that does not reflect pure and undefiled religion. It is an attitude that reflects the mindset of this world, which says, anything that I have is mine, I deserve it, and it's not for anybody else. Think about why you have what you have. A whole chain of events, many of which had very little to do with you. Whether we are in want at the moment, or whether we are in abundance at the moment, many of the factors that influence either of those two states are, are ultimately under God's sovereignty, and many of them are things that we can take no credit for. And so instead of the worldly mindset that says, this person is trying to take what's mine, James says, a true faith recognizes this person is in need, and if I really know God, I ought to be concerned about my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Why is that important? Verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. It is very easy for us to make all sorts of loud proclamations about how amazing we are, about how generous we are, about how kind we are, about how honest we are. But the louder those proclamations, and the less they're backed up by actions so that the proclamations don't need to be made, the more we see the emptiness of our words, right? Because if I say, I'm a great person, but there's no actions to back that up, they're just empty words. If I say, I love the people around me, but I act in ways that show selfishness or even hatred toward them? What good are those words? James says in verse 18, But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He's setting up a little bit of a hypothetical situation. Which one is going to prove to be true. Not the one that says, I have faith without works, watch my life, you'll see it's true. But the one in which the profession of faith is backed up by good works. And it's not enough just to have faith. Why? Verse 19, a faith that is a mere intellectual recognition of facts that does not produce obedience is a faith that parallels that of the demons. Why? It says in verse 19, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Satan's hordes know that there is one God. They know all the theological facts. What does not take place in their experience? They do not obey God, even though they know the truth. And so a faith that says, 
I believe all the right things, but that is not backed up by actions. James says that's an empty faith. If you find yourself in the same category as Satan and his demons when it comes to the sort of faith that you are described to have, that's a troublesome spot to be in, right? Do I really even know God? Because clearly they're not on God's side. They're not experiencing God's blessing. Verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Turn back with me, if you would, to Genesis 22. We'll get to this in a few weeks in our study through Genesis, but, but we can look at it briefly now. Uh, we'll look at verse 16. The angel of the Lord, we'd understand to be the pre-incarnate Christ, speaks to Abraham in verse 16 and says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That was God's assessment of what Abraham did with regard to his son. He did not actually sacrifice his son, but he was willing to do so. We have in that story a in anticipation of what God would do in Christ. We have a recognition of God's amazing provision for his people over and over again throughout the Old Testament. We have, in God's assessment of Abraham, a recognition of obedience that, yes, would not have taken place apart from God's work in Abraham, but an obedience which showed the reality of Abraham's faith was counted, reckoned, assessed by God as true faith was described as being righteousness and which was a continuing point for God to keep fulfilling his promises to Abraham. What if Abraham hadn't obeyed God? What if he'd said, this is my only son. I finally got him. I'm not going to risk his life on this harebrained scheme you've come up with, God. What would that have demonstrated about Abraham? That his faith was words. Because God had said, Get up, go from your father's house to the land I'll show you. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to make you a blessing. Other people will be blessed through them. And so, when God said... Kill your son, sacrifice him in obedience to me, 
That looks like the end of God's promises if Abraham didn't have true faith. Turn over to Hebrews, just a few pages. Hebrews 11 and verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was called and said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. We have in Abraham's obedience, in God's deliverance, a foreshadowing of what would take place with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. If Abraham had not obeyed, that picture would not exist in the way that it does. And Abraham's faith would at least at that point have faltered and been shown at least at that point to be not as solid as he had professed it to be. But in contrast, Abraham did obey Verse 22, when it says his faith was perfected, uh, we should probably understand that in terms of what James was saying in chapter 1 and verse 4. Endurance, the perfect result of it is that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Abraham's faith was made complete, shown to be mature, um, reaching the goal for which God had set out and worked in Abraham. This would parallel some of the things that Peter says in his epistles and Paul says in his epistles. It's not, your faith will be perfect like in and of yourself, you're now perfect. That's not what he's saying. But rather, that his faith would be shown to be complete. That, I think, is central in understanding what's going on in this passage. Because if we twist it out of context or make it fight against other parts of Scripture... We could walk away from what James is saying here and say, James is saying, you go to heaven because you do good stuff. You go to heaven because you have a measure of faith and you have to sort of add to that faith and then God will say, I'll let you in which is wrong on a couple of levels. One is that our goal is not to get to a place, but to have an ongoing relationship with the person of the Godhead, right? And the other thing that would be wrong about that understanding is the idea that we are earning God's favor by what we do. James is not talking about the basis of our justification from the perspective of you do good things and then God says all your sins are forgiven. James is talking about the justification of our faith more along the lines of what it says in 2 Thessalonians 1. Let me read that for you. It says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, this, the this being persecution Perseverance and faith in the midst of persecution, that's the this, is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be counted or considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Suffering in and of itself is not a basis for salvation. 
But perseverance and faith in the midst of suffering is a sign of God's assessment that you are worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ, that you actually belong to Him, and that you will be a part of His kingdom some way, someday. In the same way, James is saying, true faith produces works. There are people who have misused this passage. Luther hesitated to see this book as part of the New Testament canon, uh, the grouping of books in the New Testament, because he feared the connection or the twisting of some of these ideas by the Roman Catholic Church. I think as we look back, we can see that he overreacted in that way. But we have to recognize what it is that James is saying. And we have to be careful not to tone down what James is saying because we are afraid that people will say that we're saying you're saved by works. We are not declared righteous in God's sight on the basis of our works, but our faith continues to be vindicated by the presence of good works in our lives because of the salvation we have received on the basis of Christ's work. So are you saved by works? Are you saved by faith? Verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And taken in isolation, that sounds like God says you're righteous because you do good works. But James and Paul are talking about two different aspects of the Christian life. When Paul says, in, for example, Romans chapter 4, and talks about the example of Abraham and his faith in following God's commands, he says in Romans 4 and verse 2, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe, without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the problem to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, 
not only to those who are of, of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations I have made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become heir of many nations, father of many nations, according to what had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, and yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in a hope of the glory of God. What is Paul talking about? Paul is saying, Abraham was not declared righteous, vindicated as righteous in God's sight because he kept the law. Because God made the promises and he started his trek to the, long, the land of Canaan long before Moses' law was given. Or the signs of that law. Signs of obedience. He believed God's promise. He followed God. He obeyed God. James is making a similar point about another aspect of the Christian life, which is this. If you have believed God at this point in time, you say you have faith. What follows after it? What shows that that faith is real? What shows that God is at work in you? That you do good works. Things like he describes at the end of chapter 1, Things like not showing partiality, but instead loving your neighbor as yourself, like he talked about at the beginning of chapter 2. Things like when you encounter a brother or sister in need, don't close up your heart against them and say, hope it all works out, I'm going to go over here. Demonstrate your faith by actions that line up with what God calls his people to be and do. And somebody might say, well that's all well and good for Abraham, but I'm no Abraham. Look at verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? You say, wait a minute. Okay, we went from Abraham to a woman who's clearly described as a sinner. In what way did she demonstrate faith that's the sort of faith that we're supposed to demonstrate? Spies come in. They say, God's going to destroy your city. She had two opportunities or two options. One was, turn them into the city authorities, and then her city's not going to be destroyed. Number two, believe that they are going to carry out what they said, that their God is powerful and is going to accomplish what he has said, and that she wants to follow and trust in that God. Not that she understood or knew all of those things, but she had the beginnings of faith in God. She said, all right, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to let you out by the window, and I want you to remember me. And she's trusting that this army that's coming in is going to recognize 
the sign that she's put out her window, this scarlet rope, and is going to keep their promise to her. Ultimately, she trusts that the God that she has begun to believe in is going to keep the promises that have been made on his behalf by the spies. And so instead of turning them into the city authorities, what does she do? She helps them to escape. What does God do? He keeps that part of the wall from falling down. What happens in the story of Jericho? Walls fall down. What happens to the part of the wall where Rahab lived? Didn't fall down. God kept his promise through the spies to her. Fascinatingly enough, she becomes part of the nation of Israel through conversion, becomes part of the line of Christ, and now is given as an example of what true faith looks like in James' illustration here. So whether you're someone that the Jews looked up to as being perhaps the pinnacle of an earthly example, a brother we could say, starts out a brother or sister who's in need of daily food, passage ends with a brother and a sister who are examples of righteousness. One of the commentaries pointed that out. I thought that was fascinating. The one that we would all respect, the one that by human standards at one point in her life would have been universally looked down upon, by the grace of God, they came to have faith. How do we know that that faith was real? Because their faith acted. How did it act? Abraham, go sacrifice your son. Abraham says, I'll do it. Rahab, you trust that God can protect you from this invading army and that they're going to keep your promises to you? God did it. Verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Paul's point in Romans 4 and 5 is this. Abraham wasn't saved by doing good works in terms of keeping the law because no one can keep the law in its entirety. Abraham was saved, justified, shown to have true faith in God's sight on the basis of believing God's promises, which were ultimately fulfilled in Christ. You, if you're going to have a faith that holds up under trials, is shown to be true and real, and lives up to all that God has required of His people from the very beginning, which is to love, your, love God with all that you are, love your neighbor as yourself, that's not going to happen apart from a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. How do you know if you have that kind of faith? Because it's not just empty words here, and you keep doing your own thing through the rest of life. It's a profession of faith, about something that has really taken place, which necessarily and definitely produces good works in your life. So, as I was saying earlier, we get hesitant about a passage like this because we think people are going to assume that if we take this at face value, it's going to say we get saved by doing good stuff. So then we come over here, and in the last century, there were people who said, you know what, you can make the profession and you can live like a pagan the rest of your life, but you're all good because you prayed that prayer. That is the danger of saying 
what James says, and you're going to kind of hide that away a little bit because it makes us uncomfortable. James is not saying God forgives your sins because you do good works. He says if you have trusted in Christ, whose death is the basis of the forgiveness of your sins, really and truly know him, it's going to transform your life. Paul says it this way. We put off the old man, we put on the new man. James said it the first part of the, this chapter. Love your neighbor as yourself, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Are you a Christian? If you say that you are a Christian, is your life changed by God's power, and is that change demonstrated by doing the things that God requires, expects, that should characterize his people, because they're the things that characterize God, and God's people are supposed to be like him. What would God do if a brother or sister came into the assembly and said, I have these needs and I don't know what I'm going to do about them? What did God do for the people of Israel when they had no food and water in the desert? What did God do in and through the early church, of which James was the pastor by this point, most likely, when he writes this epistle? What did God do in and through the early church? Those that God had blessed, those who had not lost their houses and lands and things to persecution, met the needs of those who needed help. James saw their example. James remembered their example. And now there are some who have forgotten the example of what has taken place in the early church. There are some who have said, that's not for me. And James is saying, remember how God worked in us in the beginning of the church. Remember how the message of the gospel was shown to be real because of the fact that in verse 41 of Acts 2, it says, Those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and we're sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then at the end of Acts chapter 4, it said this, The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who are owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, called Barnabas, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
Which is a better picture of God's work in and among us? The American dream that says, I've got all this stuff, and I don't care that you don't have it, because I've got it, and that's good enough for me. Or the picture of the early church where they said, that brother needs help, that sister needs help. We are one in Christ, and God has blessed us, and anything that I have belongs to God. Or what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, when their resources had run out, because they had lived in this way, at least for a time, and says, you churches over here, God's blessed you, God's helped you, God's given you the gospel. If you have received things of a measurable spiritual worth, will you not also be willing to give of your temporal wealth to help those who are part of the people, the nation of Israel, through whom Christ came, through whom the gospel has come to you? I'm not saying you all need to sell your houses and we'll buy a big building and we'll all live in it together. I'm not saying that the living out of the vision of the book of Acts and what James describes here has to look exactly like it did in the first century. But the heart attitude ought to be the same because if we don't have that heart attitude of loving your neighbor as yourself, of putting the needs of one another before the wants that we have, how can we say the love of God dwells in us? How can we say that we have true faith? James says true faith is demonstrated by the way that we respond to fellow believers. It's a weighty passage. I know that you have been faithful to do these things in the past. When there have been people who have been in, been in need, we've helped them from the deacon's fund, or you've helped them individually. I've, I've heard of examples of that. So I'm not trying to condemn you with what I'm saying here. But what I am saying is, it's easy to grow weary in well-doing. It's easy to be caught up in the mindset of the world around us. It's easy to say, life is for me, and as long as I'm good, I'm good. And to have no concern about those around us. So do we have the attitude, the concern that James describes? Because if we do, and it's shown by our actions, that is one of these markers of genuine faith that he's laying out from the end of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2. And then he's going to get in chapter 3 to our words being another indication of, is our faith real or do we have a lot of growing to do? And so we'll look at that two weeks from now. But from this passage, what justifies you? What shows that your faith is real? It's not just empty words. I believe in Jesus, and then a life that looks nothing like that. It's words that are followed by actions that demonstrate God's work in and among you. You're not working your way to God, but if you know God and you are headed to be in His presence, it necessarily transforms the way that you live. Faith without works is dead. How alive is your faith? Let's pray.
before this as an extraordinarily difficult passage. And I hope by your grace the main points have been made clear. Lord, help us to wrestle with these truths. It would be so much easier if we just prayed a prayer and then we went about our business just as we had before until we died and went to heaven. But that's not what you've called us to do. That's not your goal for us. When it says in Ephesians 2.10 that you created us in Christ Jesus for good works, we've got to pause and, and ask ourselves, what do those good works look like? We don't do good works to make up the gap that separates us from you because of our sin, because we can't do that, but Christ did. But if we have known, begun to know the forgiveness that is available in Christ through his work on the cross, borne out by your raising him from the dead, it ought to do something for the way that we think the things that are priorities in our lives, the things that we do day by day. If our lives look exactly like the lives of people who don't know you, something is wrong. It shouldn't just be that we watch the same movies and enjoy the same hobbies and do the same work, but we have a Bible on our shelf and they don't. It ought to be that by your grace, our lives are changed. That even if there's overlap in some of the things that we do, the way that our lives look, our motivation, our heart attitude, the compassion that we show to those around us, it ought to be distinctively different from those who don't know you. Lord, I know there's many times in my heart and life when that is not as it should be. And for that, Lord, I ask your forgiveness. And I think that's probably true for every one of us in this room. Lord, transform our hearts. Help us to live out our faith. Not to be content that we prayed a prayer a few years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago. And that we do good Christian things. But Lord... Help us to know who you are and help our faith to be shown to be real and continue your work in us because it is not done until we stand in your presence. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.